Hey there, everybody. Uh, welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Seth. And I'm Zach. And we're the Classic Gaming Brothers. Yes. Yes, we are. That is correct. We are. That we've is done right. <laughs> we've, we've done it. This is our 24th episode today. Yeah. It's pretty exciting. It's always exciting. Every every episode's exciting. Every episode, nice. A, I like that. Yeah, every episode that we're we always have very riveting content, and uh, I'm and, always very and we've nailed these to, intros down. I mean, we are we are experts yeah. at starting a podcast. Yes, pretty much the first ten seconds might be a pretty good intro, and then it just goes off the rails from there. Goes off the rails. It is like a train crash. So, anyway, <laughs> uh, what have uh, you been recently been playing, Zach? Well, I've recently been playing Rise of Nations, which is a real-time strategy game developed by Big Huge Games and published by Microsoft Game Studios. Um, I've been playing the uh, extended edition, which was developed by Skylab, uh, uh, Skybox Labs, um, and released not too long ago, I think only within the... Yeah, around uh, 2017, they did the re-release. The original version came out in 2003 for Microsoft Windows. It is uh, kind of along the lines of similar uh, Microsoft Game Studio real-time strategy games. So very similar to like Age of Empires or Age of Mythologies. Um, right. But it was yeah. also developed at the time by a guy named Brian Reynolds, who was a designer over from... Uh, civilization 2 and sid meyer's alpha centauri so when he came over to work on this game he brought over some turn-based strategy elements into a real-time strategy game yeah so it's like a blend isn't it like between Civ yeah. and rts yeah so there's a standard campaign that plays pretty much like your usual rts campaign and then there's also these conquer the world campaigns that play a bit more like civ um you have uh, these territories that you have to take control of and it's turn-based so each either the computer or the people you're playing against get a turn to take over territories but the different thing that doesn't happen in Civ is when you move to attack a territory it switches into the RTS mode and then you actually play out the battle right um, in in a real-time tra- strategy setting um, kind of like the Total War series yeah it does it does do something similar to Total War there there's also other things that you can do in this game that are different than real-time strategy games. Uh, for example, you can beat enemies by um, attrition warfare. Right. Um, so you don't necessarily need to destroy the enemy. You can just make sure that they can no longer function as a society because they no right. longer have any resources. Um, and that is a valid way of, of stopping um, a computer or, a, or a, another player. Um the, the game also has a huge tech tree. So you start off in the prehistoric age and you end in the um, f- kind of like a future modern age where you can go from pretty much people who throw rocks to stealth bombers with nuclear war t- uh, tipped missiles. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a wide variety of gameplay. Um, I know my friends hate playing it with me because um, I, I played the campaign for like a solid week back in college and then 
my friends decided to play with me and before they were even out of like the middle of the bronze age i was d- developing s- nuclear subs and nice. <laughs> like surrounding their islands <laughs> and then like one of my buddies was like just moving into like the like the coal age or something and i launched an icbm at his <laughs> capital and wiped him out nice so uh yeah it's um it's a, it's a game that is, I think it's a lot of fun. I, I definitely like the kind of blend of turn-based and real-time strategy elements. Um, and I'm, I'm a big real-time strategy fan, so it's uh, yeah. I definitely recommend picking up the extended edition copy on Steam. It's I'm fairly certain it has all of the DLC, or sorry, expansion packs that were out for the game back in the early 2000s, um, as well as being uh, you know 4K compatible now and um Ooh, very pretty yeah i i whatever so i some always feel like i'm i always want to play the total war series but uh i'm also very bad at the total war series uh so i i've i've never really mastered the ability to re, like control units beyond like a strategy of like charge at the enemy oh yeah oh, now everyone's fleeing i guess i lost this round I, I'm like the autocomplete guy in any of the Total War series, but Rise of Nations, I, I don't know. I think I'd, I'd play that again. And- yeah, if you have familiarity with, you know, the Age of Empire games, um, right. you'll, you'll, you'll be going into a familiar territory. A lot of the base building elements of the real-time strategy part of the game are straight out of um, Age of Empires. Yeah, which I enjoyed. Uh, what about you, Seth? What have you been playing? So I've actually been recently been playing a game called The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. I think I've heard of that one. It's uh, a g- game that was originally released on the Super NES back in 1991. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually was ported to the Game Boy Advance and that happened in the early 2000s, 2002 for North America. And then uh, I've recently been playing it on the Switch because it's available so if you uh subscribe to the switch internet i guess the whatever the like online play for the switch yeah i know you're talking if about you subs- if you subscribe to that you can uh get access to nes and snes classics yeah and just pretty it's cool. part of the subscription so if you're part of a like a big family plan or if you're an individual plan they're actually it's pretty reasonable i think the online plan is not that crazy i think it's 20 bucks price. a year yeah yeah, yeah, which I is like, like ridiculously inexpensive for what it's offering. Right. Yeah, especially since you get all the SNES games. And you can play online with your friends. So if you want to play Stardew Valley or something, you can play Stardew Valley online, which I have. Nice. Um, but I'm playing uh, Legend of Zelda Link to the Past. Uh, I actually never beat the game, so I'm looking forward to beating this Legend of Zelda game. Um, I'm so far, I just got the Courage Pendant, and I'm working okay. on my way of getting the second... I'm in the Desert Dungeon. Yeah, okay. So... What's cool about the I, so I it's actually funny I feel like the world of a link to the past is much smaller than it should be yeah so I'm always going to like the world map and I'm like well this is like the first stage and then I'm like no this is it this is the entire world <laughs> you could just view on the map and you could just kind of walk around like I I just thought that was kind of interesting going being primarily an Ocarina of Time Zelda player yeah. Uh, going where the world map was pretty intense. Yeah. Um and Saint Breath of the Wild's got a huge world too. Yeah. Um, yeah. world map. But so this one is it's fun. I've actually seen some really cool 3D maps. The so you can get a 
uh, the Legend of Zelda Link to the Past world map as a, a shadow box. And oh, yeah. I think cool. I've seen those so, for sale. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're really, really cool. Get them on Etsy or something like yeah. that. Uh, yeah, it's cool what people have done. I, I, f- I feel like a lot, a lot of our generation is okay with like selling. It's like a conflagration of people who have grown up with it and also having the internet. So you can now like sell stuff like you could buy like the x-men arcade game shadow boxed or stuff like like just stuff yeah that's yeah yeah more geeky and stuff like that yeah I, like an art form i i noticed with the shadows shadow boxes um some of the ones i've seen for sale at conventions like pax and um a couple other conventions i've been to they'll sometimes have like niche games like yeah like i'll see something i'm like i didn't think anyone else played that game and someone made right. a shadow box for it which is like awesome yeah uh, which i guess is how they're how they're getting their sales is because someone like myself will be like, Oh, you made a Rye star shadow box. I'm definitely yeah, going to buy that. I'll buy that $140 later. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, it is, it's very cool, you know, having that you know, market out there. So, yeah, so it's, that's, it's a legend. It's the legend of Zelda. Um, there's beyond, it's a traditional top down game that most of our listeners should be familiar with. The important and question is, have you found the Chris Houlihan room yet? I have not. Okay. I am. Uh, I. I will make sure I go to it before I complete. Pay, the game. pay your respects. <laughs> pay my respects to Chris Hand. Yeah. Um, you can learn more about the Legend of Zelda: Link to the Past by listening to our SNES episode where we that's talk right. a little bit about it. That was earlier than this episode. And so I think that's a great segue into I'm, our. I'm really good at segueing. You are uh, into the kind of main chunk of our episode. We're actually going back a bit to. Um, you know, we did our Sega episode where we talked about Sega Genesis. Yep. We did our NES episode. We talked about the Nintendo Entertainment System. We did the Super Nintendo. We did the N64. And now we're just going to hop back in our time machines and go back to the near very beginning and talk about the Atari 2600, a video game system that Seth and I have played. Neither of us grew up with. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> as as Correct. for clarification. Yeah, um, and we yeah, we didn't own one either. No. So, I mean, jumping right into our memories, I guess, um, I personally did not own an Atari until I was in high school when I started getting into retro game collecting and I went to a place called Game Underground, which was in Framingham. And in Game Underground, which was one of the first non-major, like non-chain um, video game store that mm-hmm. i had been in it was the first like independent video game store i'd been in and they had an atari 2600 there for sale and i had never even seen one in person and i was like i want that and i didn't buy it because i didn't have any money at the time but my mom was uh our mom was very sweet and uh ended up buying it for me for a, like a gift as a as an early as an early birthday gift or something it was like 30 bucks so it wasn't that expensive and it took me some time getting it to work, but eventually I got it to work and I started to enjoy the uh, blips and bloops of the Atari. And um, to this day, I still have my Atari 2600 that I had in high school and it's I still play it every now and then. Um, and it's a, it's a fun little system to play with. I have made some modifications over the years to make it a little more little more quality of life, but it, it is a, it's a good system. What about you, Seth? What memories do you have playing Atari? Uh- so my my memories of playing Atari are uh, very scattered memories of being a child and going to, I assume, friends' houses. They were maybe our mother's friends or 
and they had children. Uh, they had these people that I vaguely remember. They had a, an Atari 2600, and I played a couple of games with them on that Atari 2600, uh, uh, including the combat game, which has got tanks, which we'll talk yep. about. Um, and I remember the, uh, like it's it had like, um, like a wood grain on the, on the machine yeah, itself. Yeah. And it kind of reminded me of like, uh, like a, the station wagon of consoles. It was just kind yeah. of like very like retro, like it just felt like, it just felt like the seventies. The original design is a beast. It looks like a radio or something. Like yeah. you could you can definitely see someone having one on top of like an old 80s style VCR or or like yeah. a stereo system, you know? Like exactly. it is it is it is a relic of the eighties in its appearance. Yes. Um yes. if you've never seen an Atari twenty six hundred before it's it's a like Seth said it has a wood grain front to it and then it has this kind of like grill going up to where the cartridge slot is which the cartridge slot is at an angle and then it has these metal switches like um either six of them on the original system or four of them on some of the later models and they're these like jutting out and the switches are labeled like uh bw or color for black and white and color tvs there's a reset switch there's difficulty switches if you want to make the game harder you just flop a switch you know um there were no menus in these games so you had to most of it was done on the actual system and then all of the ports so the port for the power and the port for the plugs are actually on the rear of the system um which makes kind of plugging it in a little awkward feeling but that was just the way it was back then uh, and the uh the controllers were uh, just a joystick and a button yes one one button one button it one which usually button. did did something in the game yeah it had and an action a, <laughs> an action and then a contr- and a and a joystick yeah uh and the joystick moved around very similar to like uh an arcade cabinet joystick yeah right? Which very much where I think they were inspired from. Um, so most arcade cabinet joysticks would have uh, switches inside of them that make like clicky noises. The Atari did not have switches inside of it. It was a digital joystick, so it right. um, used contacts as opposed to physical switches. So it doesn't have like a satisfying feeling to it when you're using it, like an arcade joystick might have. But it is, as Seth said, inspired by the arcade joysticks of the time yes and i had another memory of the atari 2600 um we went to some other people's houses that may have been other friends but it was different because the first people i remember they had their atari 2600 in like a bedroom yeah like an upstairs room and then this other group of people had their 2600 in like a den in like a basement oh okay and they that is where i played et uh, so they they had a copy of uh, ET, uh, and they they also had a copy of Pitfall, and so I played Pitfall and ET at that location, and I played Combat at the first house. Excellent, and uh, that's where I experienced my Atari twenty six hundred games, all of which are pretty much the three greatest games that could probably I think come so. out on the the twenty six hundred. I think those are a good you know solid experience. It's a, it's a solid a little, spread. A little bit of good, a little bit of bad. You know, you got everything. It was like a charcuterie board right there. It, it was. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't. I mean, I, ET definitely probably the best. Uh, absolutely, out of all of them. absolutely. It certainly didn't um, crash an entire market. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> jumping—that's jumping ahead a bit to to yes. talk about a, 
Atari, we have to talk about the history of Atari. Uh, Atari Incorporated was founded in 1972 by Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney. So previously, Bushnell and Dabney had created this game called Computer Space, which was based on a very, very early game called Space War. And Space War was this kind of like, it looks a little like asteroids, except you're playing as two spaceships that are shooting each other, and there's a gravity well in the center. So if you go close to the gravity well, it will slingshot you around. It was fairly advanced for being a computer game made in the 1960s, but it was only available on massive computers at college universities which is where bushnell saw it he was at the university of utah and it was on display in the computer lab on one of their terminals so he took this idea and he thought well what if we made this something we could sell and him and dabney worked on this computer space machine which they had some success with Um, a company called nutting was the distributor for the computer space actual cabinet but it wasn't like a hit people didn't really play a lot of computer space and and to this day you'll probably be surprised to find someone who remembers computer space. What it did do, though, was it set up Bushnell and Dabney with Al Alcorn, who was a brilliant designer who helped develop what became Pong. And Pong was also inspired by something else. Nolan Bushnell went to a demonstration of the Magnavox Odyssey, which was the first home video game system. And Bushnell was like, hey, we're going to do that first. So he created Pong. Pong was, as the name applies, a ping pong game. You played as one of two paddles and there was a ball. You got to knock the ball back and forth. And it did really well in its early start. They put it into some local bars. They were making around $400 a week from those bars from each machine. Uh, They decided that they're going to release the game under their own name as opposed to going through a distributor such as Bally or Nutting, both of which they had contracts worth and both of which they ended up closing the contracts out so that they could do their own distribution. And it cemented Atari's name in its coin-op market. And Seth and I will both talk about the coin-op industry in another episode. We're going to do an episode on, um, you know, cabinets. cabinets and such. So we'll, we can talk more about coin-op then. But an important note um, from Atari's early history was that they were a very relaxed company in the early years, pretty much up until the point they got sold to Warner Communications. There are stories of people smoking weed on the job drinking on the job they used to bring kegs into the um into the office every time they had a like successful game uh steve jobs worked for atari during some of this early period he was actually tasked to work on the board for breakout which he ended up giving to steve wozniak who did not work for atari (laughs) to do the project for him um and they both of course left to start apple and then in 1975 bushnell decided that he wanted to produce something flexible he wanted to create something that people could have in their homes that they could do more than just pong with so at the time atari had what were dedicated consoles they had the arcade machines in the arcades and they had the dedicated consoles in the homes so you had your pong machine you had a combat machine you know you had a breakout machine and they're these small little boxes that you plugged into your tv with controllers on them but you couldn't do anything else with them you could only play pong on the pong machine you could only play breakout on the breakout machine So Bushnell wanted to create a flexible system. And in 76, they kind of got their breakthrough when the 6502 processor came out. This allowed Atari to develop a high performance and low cost system using the CPU, which led to what became the Atari video computer system, 
which was later rebranded as the 2600 in 1977. And so this is the history leading into Atari 2600. It was, you know, this whole project that they they wanted to bring home a uh, a flexible video game system for the home market. They were not the first to do this, though. <laughs> they actually were beaten to the market by uh, almost a year or two by a company called Fairchild, which created the Fairchild Channel F. Um, however, the Atari did much better than Fairchild. It was cheaper. It was nicer. And it had much better games, and the games were colorful. Yeah. On Fairchild, you only had four colors. On Atari, you had tons of colors. It was amazing for people, and which I think helped because well, Atari they were mostly their their games that they were just exactly changing into their flexible system. Yeah, um, I just before we get too far away from it, uh, the six five zero two CPU is also the same name as the 6502 Collective. That's right. Which is the group that makes uh, homebrew games that we talked about in our trophy episode. That's right. That's and right. And that's where they took the name of the 6502. Well, I assume they took the name. Yeah, they, 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 took it from, uh, they took it from 6502 Assembly, which was the language that you would use to so communicate right. with the 6502 CPU. Right. Specifically, the Atari was using a 6507, but that's getting into the nitty-gritty. So in um, 1982, Atari was seeing some competitors rise up. They uh, Mattel had the Intellivision. Coleco, which was the Connecticut leather company, um, had, the, yeah, <laughs> had the ColecoVision, both of which were uh, more powerful systems than the Atari. Atari still had that market name, you know, that, that they were considered the home video game console um for for people but they were seeing some you know money being lost to these competitors now in 82 atari had two major flops they've had flops before but these ones were bad (laughs) so they released a very poor port of pac-man where pac-man isn't even a circle the sound is weird and the colors are off and the like maze looks nothing like pac-man's maze and then they released E.T., the extraterrestrial. Uh, So E.T. was a movie-licensed game made in a very short time period. I think it was something like... um, Uh, Six months. Six months, around six months, by Howard Scott Warshaw, whose um, credit at the time was uh, Yars' Revenge, as well as Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was a pretty decent game for the Atari 2600. He wasn't given a lot of time. He wasn't given a lot of information. And what happened was the game just bombed it it did really badly it it was so such a bomb for atari that they ended up seeing tons and tons of copies getting returned to the stores and then recalled because of how badly it was doing he he um sorry i just have to correct ourselves (laughs) so howard scott warsaw the uh designer of the game was given five and a half weeks oh so yeah, so even less he, time than six months. <laughs> so they they got the negotiations to license the game in July of 1982, and Atari said to Howard Scott Warsaw, "Please have this available for Christmas." Yes, yeah, yeah. So he was given about a month to get this game out. In hindsight, it is understandable why the game may not have been as good. Um, if you've never played ET, it is a very ambitious game. It, it did release it on did December release. of 1982. <laughs> yeah. He did make his deadline. He made his deadline. And it was a very ambitious game. You played as E.T. It was multiple screens. Um, you had to like collect items. You had to collect pieces of a phone so you could phone home. 
And there were some other cool things that, but people just didn't really get it. And, and people didn't like it. So because of all this influx of returns, and now people were no longer interested in buying Atari games because they knew Pac-Man was terrible, they knew E.T. was terrible, they weren't going out to buy video games anymore, the market crashed. And it, uh, Atari ended up facing, in about a, one year, um, $500 million in losses, um, which devastated them. Um, to make up for the financial failure, Warner Communications began to sell off parts of Atari to different corporations. Um, the home computing and game console division was sold to uh, Jack Trammell, which was fun because Jack Trammell was actually a competitor to Atari for a while with his Commodore company, um, but he had recently been ousted from Commodore, so he had some time on his hands. And uh, Namco ended up purchasing Atari Games, which was their uh, coin-op division. So after the 83 ca- uh, crash, Atari released a couple more consoles. They did the 5200, 7800, as well as some home computers. But um, eventually they effectively stopped producing video games in the uh, late, late 90s. Well, counts, producing hardware. Console, ha- hardware, yeah. Because Atari is, is still a, a publisher in a, a video game. Like, they, they haven't left the video game market. To be to uh, to be fair, though, it is mostly Atari in name only. Um, right, it is no longer the company it was. Atari Incorporated was broke apart in the eighties. Yes, but interestingly enough, the twenty six hundred was actually officially supported until nineteen ninety two, when it was officially discontinued, which is ridiculous to me. <laughs> I mean, as a system that came out in seventy seven, and it was officially supported until ninety two. And they even re-released smaller versions of it in the eighty in the late eighties and eighty six. There were about five hundred and twenty six total games released between nineteen seventy seven and nineteen eighty two. And to this day, thanks to sites like Atari Age, um, new games are created by homebrew developers, such as Halo twenty six hundred, which is a port of Halo Combat Evolved for the twenty six hundred, which is amazing. <laughs> Another one that just came out is Zippy the Porcupine, which is a full version of uh, Sonic the Hedgehog for the Atari twenty six hundred, which is really impressive. Um, but there's also some other ones that have come out now and then, and some improvements to older games, and even some Atari programmers, you know, who've long since left the left the days of programming video games are out there making homebrews. The love for the system is still very much alive, but um, it it definitely has its place in history. I I agree. Yeah. Though before, so I just wanted to touch briefly on uh, the ET game. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, people thought because so et licensed property uh christmas season they uh atari made a big bet on it and made a lot of it and then it was very bad as we said and so people brought returned the games so they had an overproduction and a return so they had an overabundance of inventory Yes. And it was a, an urban legend that they actually just buried them all. That's how bad they were. That that uh, that Atari just went into the desert and just filled a landfill full of them. So in 2014, there were a, it was a, there's a documentary about the ET game and the Atari crash. They went out into the desert and they dug up and confirmed that at Alamogorda uh, New Mexico has a landfill that does contain many ET cartridges. <laughs> yep. a- and uh, James Heller, who was an Atari manager, 
was in charge of the burial and has confirmed that 728,000 ET cartridges Oh, oh, well, of games, mostly E.T., but also of other cartridges as well, have all been buried it's in, in that landfill. Um, so that E.T. could be, and has been, people have done podcasts on E.T. in its entirety. Yeah. Um, and there, there's even a, a podcast called um, Brought to You By, which interviewed Howard Scott Warshaw, which I recommend listening to. If you're interested in uh, E.T. and the Atari crashes, um, they they really dig into it, and it's very interesting. Uh, I'm reading here that apparently Heller said he originally ordered the site to be covered in concrete, but apparently that just never happened. So no, <laughs> that could... put him in the desert, and then just said, "Out of sight, out of mind." The the best part is, I'm sure if you get really deep into some of those cartridges and you popped them in the system, some of them will probably still work because those things oh, are yeah. resilient. <laughs> you know. <laughs> blowing it a little bit it'll be yeah, good just get the dust out yeah that that is um always a fascinating piece of atari's history um the video game crash and what ended up happening with et cartridges so there are a few games that i think i mentioned that we also mentioned earlier that were popular for the atari there was combat which came out in 77 it was actually a packaged game and seth you remember playing combat right or yes you said you played yep. some combat i i definitely played combat uh you play as uh top-down tanks and one person controls one side of the tank and the tank and the other person controls another tank and uh they you go at and they attack each other and shoot each other and stuff like that yeah it's um it, you're kind of like in a little maze right um right yeah right. and i think if you toggle some of the difficulty switches it changes up the the maze um layout and also gives you some other gameplay modes yeah. Um, uh, I think there's one mode called like Pong Tank where it's like the ball bounces. Or the, oh, that's not cool. the ball, but the missile will bounce around. Yeah. 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 Um, and then there was uh, Adventure, which came out possibly in 1979, possibly 1980. Yeah. The, the details on that aren't incredibly clear. Um, and the reason being is because back then video games were not sold the same way that we see them nowadays, where they have a ton of copyright information, they have a ton of. Um, details and stuff like that they would have the copyright but the games didn't even credit their artists back then didn't even credit the programmers didn't credit the designers yeah no it was they were solely owned by the company right so like adventure was done by atari and was owned by atari and they and it was created by atari not by these designers and developers you'd have to research that to see who actually did it because i i feel like nowadays designers and developers have more agency than they did back then you're right because back then they were just kind of making television sets essentially they were making a, a widget yeah a widget was, was a video game yeah um and it was actually an adventure that we had the birth of what became the video game easter egg because of this exact reason warren robinette who was the designer really wanted his game his name uh, in the game he wanted his name to be there so he actually snuck in a line of code that displays his name in one of the rooms and you have to do a specific um set of actions to trigger this to occur this was made famous of course by the book and movie ready player one where i believe mm -hmm. it's one of the ways that um you get one of the keys um in the challenge yeah. yes yep so that it, it's a very um it's a very neat little thing to find. Um, an adventure is a cool game. It was uh, it's an adventure game. You you play as a square 
who has to travel around big squares to collect small squares and bring them to castles that look like squares. <laughs> right. So yeah. It's a very square game. It's a very square game. It's, it reminds me a lot of um, the ZZT, which was done by um, Epic Games, actually. Yeah, it does. It does remind me a lot of ZZT. <laughs> um, I, which we've, I think we talked about ZZT in our episode zero we i think we have to go back i think we did i think that was like we were just kind of like you know bopping around thoughts and we mentioned zzt but we'd have to do a whole thing on zzt it's a fascinating yeah so adventure if you're familiar with zzt or if you're familiar with adventure they are very similar in regards that you control like a little like zach said like a a square or some sort of like asc ci symbol and an ascii symbol and you move around and you interact with the world using essentially the characters that that's native to the computer another great game for the atari 2600 was pitfall um so pitfall was really cool it was actually not developed by atari it was available for the system but it was developed by activision which is still around to this day as a game developer and activision only started because of that reason of programmers and developers wanted their names on the game and the people who developed uh, went on to found activision essentially went to atari execs and said listen either you have us and you put us on the box or you don't have us and atari said guess we don't have you so they left um of course that's not verbatim they went on to create activision they produced a whole bunch of games under the activision license um atari took them to court and said you can't be producing games for our system if we're not making the games and the court said yes they can because they're not ripping you off they are literally putting things onto they're literally just making games that's what they're doing so they um they won the lawsuit and because of that we had what became third party developers for the Atari 2600. And Pitfall's really cool. You play as Pitfall Harry, who is a man as you go through the woods and you have to jump over things. Um you have to jump over crocodiles, you have to jump over logs. Um and perhaps it was, even pits. And pits. And it was um one of the earlier what would become side-scrolling platformers that would eventually evolve into things like Mario and uh and sonic of course um but it's a little fascinating um game it's kind of cool that activision which was around as a bunch of disgruntled people who just wanted to have their name on it are still around to this day and atari and really isn't <laughs> actually probably a far larger company than atari they is are now massive company <laughs> i also think that most of the games that were developed for the atari 2600 the better rated ones are the activision ones yeah usually if you ask someone to list some atari games they'll probably end up listing some activision games like um pitfall there was a boxing game that was really good there was a racing game that was pretty good that was done mm-hmm. by um activision uh, barnstorming is another one where you play as a airplane and you have to like dodge um birds that are in the sky and stuff like that um, so there's a ton of games that were available uh, that Activision made that became kind of staples for Atari, which ended up making Atari a little grumpy. But uh, I assume Atari eventually had to embrace the fact that they had some they had some competitors in terms of software now. It was cool, though, that Activision did spin off because another thing that they wanted to do was get their games on other systems, which was a big no-no for Atari. If you were developing for Atari, you were developing for Atari. You weren't developing for Commodore and for Apple and for, 
you know, Coleco and, and Mattel, but Activision were third party. They can do whatever they wanted. So that's what they did. They produced games for Intellivision. They produced games for Coleco. They produced games for uh, Commodore. So they, um, they got around. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if that was one of the things that helped them become as successful as they are now. Right. So I think that's uh, good for our Atari segment. Yeah. Today. Um, definitely uh, more of a historical dive, I would say. Historical dive. But, you know, uh, I think in, in the context of Atari, it's it's interesting to learn about the history of, you know, games. It was this very wild west period of of development and really helped create the world that we know today in games and we wouldn't have a lot of games that we have today if it wasn't for atari so right i i feel yeah definitely i think they helped solidify the rules that kind of like what esports was going through a couple of years ago yeah where like a lot of esports was going up against trying to become now esports are a thing but like 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, they weren't a thing. And they had to go through and kind of establish themselves. I think any new industry really has these moments where they are kind of the Wild West. And eventually the rules are laid down. Yeah. And eventually things become... Sometimes they become a little commercialized. And people start to hedge away from things that become com- overly commercialized. Uh, whereas else but... a it does also bring in a larger audience. Yeah, So if absolutely. video games stayed the way that they were, the way it was back in the, you know, the early 80s, late 70s, then you would have some people that, you know, they would still be viewed as a widget versus yeah. what they are today. Yeah. Which, thankfully, Activision decided to take take a fight to the big guys. And, and even a big guy. Yeah. And even though something like the video game crash in 83 was detrimental for Atari without it, we wouldn't have had the success of the Nintendo, which Correct. came in at the time when the crash was at its worst. And they, they were able to bring the market back up to better than it was um, yeah. in years to come. Um, so, you know, it's uh, Atari's falling that gave Nintendo its rise uh, in many ways. Uh, so to, uh, we do uh, have uh, a special guest that will be yeah. joining us in our next episode. Yeah, that's right. And uh, he may have more experience. We may be ta- we'll probably be talking more uh, more Atari and older game systems with this guest. Yeah, I think so. Uh, he he is a uh, a specialist, <laughs> and we, we won't say any more. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But but we do we will have a our first interview uh, in our twenty fifth episode because that's exciting. It's very exciting. That's that's going to be um, next week. So that'll be next week. We'll move right whatever along. week you're in. Yeah, it's going to be next week. Uh, or it so, might be last week if you're listening in the future. <laughs> <laughs> might be last week. Might have been some week in the past. So what what about uh? Get we get onto the buy wait pass segment. Yeah, uh, Zach, what are you excited about buying, waiting, or passing on? So the game on my buy wait pass for today is a game called Faith. The full name is uh, Faith: The Unholy Trinity, and I thought it was kind of fitting to talk about this game because of its aesthetics. It it does actually kind of look like an old Atari game. Um, or like like an old, uh, maybe like a really old MS-DOS or Apple II game or something like that. You know, very, very simple graphics, like plain colors, no gradients on the colors or anything. Um, but Faith is an 8-bit inspired 
horror game where you play as a young priest who's struggling against demons, cultists, and his own weakening faith. And you are going through a town that's being haunted by demons. Um, It's also inspired by what was known as the kind of satanic panic of the 1980s. This was a period in time where everyone thought that satanic cults were real and were out to get you. Um, D&D was bad. Yeah, Uh, it was a a lot of confusion, a lot of miscommunication that existed in that time period that bled to that fear. But this game is inspired by that time period. It looks like a really cool game, and I've played the demo. So the demo is free right now on Steam. Uh, The demo is a nice glimpse into how the game's going to be. I liked it. Um, I I think I'm going to put it on a buy. However, uh, I wish I could tell you more about when it's coming out. Its planned release date is soon, and then they trademarked soon. <laughs> so it says, planned release date, soon in all capitals, trademark. Uh, so, who's to but say? You play the demo. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I uh, recommend it, uh, and uh, I am looking forward to picking it up when it is fully available. What about you, Seth? Buying, waiting, passing, what are you going to do? So, I there's a, a, a game that actually came out uh, a couple of years ago, but is uh, it's still in early access. So, I'm going to put it down as my byway pass since it's still in early access. There you go. Because if it's in early access, it hasn't come out yet. Yeah, perfect. Uh, so, th- this game is called uh, Breath Edge, and you play the life of a simple man, capital M, okay. with very simple needs. Capital N? Such as M, man. <laughs> no, I know, but needs, capital N. Oh, no, just <laughs> regular needs. <laughs> okay. Uh, who's, who's trying to uh, survive while deep in deep space. All right. So you have to uh, explore space, uh, build stuff. Uh, and according to the description of the game, kick corpses and poke everything with a chicken. Uh, <clears throat> so one of the items that you get in the game is apparently a live chicken that is immortal. Okay. And you can use it to do things with it, like poke electrical currents and fill in tubes. As you do. But the chicken's immortal, so it's okay. It doesn't die. You do... It is a base survival game kind of akin to subnautica which is a game that takes place where you're in a submarine and you are well not and you're trying to like get out into the world of the ocean and try and survive underwater yeah where uh this game will take place where you're in a little space station and you're trying to get places out in space and you have limited oxygen yeah uh, so it, it looks fun uh they are running a a sale on the game where it's 30% off till the 18th, which is tomorrow. And uh, the game retails for $19.99 and it's MSRP at $13.99. So I think this is going to be a buy for me. Uh, It looks funny and uh, light, which is something that I've kind of been feeling the need for. I like Subnautica, so I probably like this game. And I'll probably buy it before the sale is over nice well hey um maybe it'll be something that we uh show on our twitch perhaps perhaps we can we can show it on our twitch or i'll talk about it in our recently played segment perfect well i think that just about does puts a fork in this episode put a fork in this episode it's done it's done it is it is it is it is well done 
It is well done. All right. Well, there is a number of ways that you can contact us, listen to us, and support us. You want to tell me about uh, this? Sure. Right. You can contact us by going to our website and going to the contact form and Whoa. filling that form out and sending it to us. We will read said form and respond to you. Well, you Seth can will. also. I will. Yes, not Zach. <laughs> you can also send an email to classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com. If you send this email or you send this contact form, we will put you in a random drawing to receive a game, which we will do a drawing for in our 26th episode. Ah! Because our 25th episode is going to be primarily taken up by our interview with our special guest. So then you can... <laughs> Not because we forgot. <laughs> we always forget to do it. <laughs> but now I've committed us. You can listen to us on where all podcasts are listened to. If there is a podcast application that we are not on, you can ask for us to be put onto it, and we will try our darndest to get put onto it. Um, but we are, you know, Stitcher, iTunes, Google, um, iHeartRadio, Acast, CastBox. We're there. We also get picked up by repeaters. So, like, there's the main one that gets played, and then there's, like, uh, companies like CastBox and Podcast yeah. Addict, which are essentially repeaters. They just pick up on RSS feeds that are in main, like Stitcher and stuff like that. So, so we're pretty much everywhere i thought you meant like we're picked up on like am repeaters so like if no you're driving we could out, be if you're driving out in like the countryside somewhere and you tune in at the right time you might catch the dulcet tones of classic i mean i could i could do that right i could get the something to just push out from my house yeah you could it might be an fda violation but no be. there's somebody that plays christmas music on a certain channel all right well let's do it yeah <laughs> just right. get a little be great a- only within within uh within uh, 200 feet of my house you can listen to us and repeat there you go maybe Perfect. i could do it with my um maybe i could figure out my raspberry pi and make it do that um and then finally you can uh support us by liking subscribing sharing ringing bell following us on twitch youtube our twitch is classic gaming brothers zach's view is vs classic gaming brothers uh, our youtube is classic gaming brothers our facebook and instagram are classic gaming brothers and our twitter is cg brothers pod so feel free to like follow subscribe share we also have a merchandise store where you can buy shirts and coffee mugs if you're listening to this during the covid19 situation don't expect the package to arrive anytime soon. Uh, our shipping and our our print shops have are delayed, and we're running about a month behind in production. Yeah. So, good luck. We'll still take your money, but we won't send you anything for a long time. But you'll get it eventually. Yeah. Um. So, with that said, Zach, is there anything else? Don't play games like my brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Zach. And I've been Seth. Nice! And we've been the Classic Gaming Brothers. And we've been the Classic Gaming Brothers. Wait, why'd you say nice like that? That was unnecessary. Well, it's nice. It's nice, it's it's nice, nice that, that we've been Seth. Seth, that you've been Seth and I've been Zach. <laughs> yes, we, it would be weird if we were somebody else. It would also be weird if we both were Seth. <laughs> <laughs> it would be weird if we were both Seth. Alright, I'm gonna play the music. Play the music! Play the music!